Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing in our study of the book of Matthew today with our series called The Mysteries of Compassion. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 14, 34 to 15, verse 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled The Bible, Traditions, and Compassion. For some who are listening to me, I know what you're thinking. The Bible, traditions, and compassion? Well, those things just don't fit into the same sentence. Compassion happens when you break with traditions. You know, there is a story of Martin Luther that sounds just like that, and I think it's an example. Luther was ministering to a family from whom one member of that family, well, he had just taken his own life. It was a suicide. And in Catholic tradition, it, well, it came from Augustine on down, it was believed that those who took their own lives, they went instantly to hell. And for that reason, they were not permitted to be buried in a church graveyard. Well, Luther had a very different view of suicide, and he insisted that the burial happen in the graveyard. You know, he had said that people who committed suicide, you know, weren't murdering themselves. They had been overcome by the despair of the devil. And that's why they had taken their lives. Well, I don't want to get into a debate about suicide or what that means. I'm simply trying to make a point. Some in the past have argued that since taking one's own life is murder, even when that is murder of self, it's still a murder. And it's sin, they said, and it breaks the sixth commandment. And you know, the Ten Commandments, that's God's top ten. And then from that, it was reasoned that that sins can only be forgiven if we repent of our sins, if we seek the Lord's forgiveness. But that can't be the case in a suicide. And so the tradition of graveyards, which would have been attached to church parishes, well, that was a symbol of the hope of the resurrection of the righteous. And you don't put the unrighteous in that graveyard. And there you have it. The Bible, traditions that rise out of it, and yeah, not compassion, a lack of it. And as you know, there are those who are deeply suspicious that there are those who lack compassion simply because they believe the Bible and they also keep the traditions that extend out from it. Now, as you know, we can all criticize traditions, but but there's no society in the world that doesn't have deeply rooted traditions. Here's one of ours. The Bible doesn't tell us to celebrate December 25th as Christmas. Well, in fact, it doesn't even tell us to celebrate Christmas at all. And whether or not you know it, for the first several hundred years in the life of the church, there was no such thing as a celebration of Christmas. But, you know, gradually a tradition did develop. And then we set aside the 25th of December. There we would celebrate the birth of our Lord. And then very soon, I mean, trees are added and decorations and singing of carols and giving of gifts and on and on go the tradition. But nothing in that lacks compassion. Indeed, there was a tradition that was attached, and that was giving to the poor, reaching out to the lonely. And for times past, that also was a Christian tradition attached to Christmas. Well, unfortunately, now in our day, the merchants have gotten a hold of Christmas, and they made it a season for maxing out your visa. Now, that's a secular tradition, and that, I would argue, that's a cruel tradition indeed. Now, Jesus didn't eschew all traditions. So let's begin to read our text, and it's today found in Matthew 14. I'll start at verse 34 to 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. 
Our text today takes off, you know, first from the feeding of the 5,000, and then it has Jesus walking on water and declaring his true nature to his disciples. And we remember that before Jesus fed the 5,000, well, we read that he had compassion on the crowd and that he healed all the sick. So Jesus' reputation as a miracle worker is growing. And he now arrives on the shore at a place called Gennesaret. It's a region between his hometown, which is in Capernaum, and the city of Tiberias. And the people in that region have heard about Jesus. And as soon as he steps ashore, everyone hears about it and they bring anyone who's sick. And all they wanted to do is touch the fringe of his garment, and all who touched it were made well. Now, before I move on, I think, for the sake of what we're about to read, it's important now to stop and explain this thing that our English Bible calls the fringe of his garment. So much more than the edge of a cloak. Listen, if you will, to Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 to 39. It says, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So there you have it, an enduring biblical tradition. It was a tradition which God mandated for faithful Jewish men. And so they wore tassels on the fringe of their garments. And Jesus did exactly that. He kept that tradition. For Jesus, these tassels on the corner of his garment reminded him to remain faithful to his God. They were the objects that people often wanted to touch. And why was that? Well, the answer is plain. You know, it would clearly be that many Jewish men, the tassels were just a tradition. That was it. But for Jesus, they were a symbol of his faithfulness to the law of God. And he was a man who was marked by obedience to the Father. And that's why people wanted to touch that which symbolized his character. So we have this amazing combination. We've got obedience to the Bible, honoring the traditions that rise directly out of the Bible. And these things put together, well, they form a springboard for his compassion to the sick and the hurting. So let's move forward now to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Oh, now then it turns out Jesus didn't honor all the traditions of his culture after all. So let's find out about that. So these religious teachers would have come to Jesus from Jerusalem, and that sounds serious. That would indicate that the ruling religious establishment in Jerusalem has been paying attention to what Jesus is doing, and there's a growing concern in the corridors of religious authority. This man is violating the heart of the faith of Israel. He breaks the traditions. And here's where it gets fascinating. You know, Gennesaret, that's where Jesus is now. That's where he's healing the sick. Well, that's not a town. It's an agricultural region. So in order to actually find Jesus, well, those Pharisees and scribes must have had to ask around a lot. And they probably would have known to showed up in his hometown, Capernaum. And then eventually they would have asked around and now they've come here. But they're looking for him. They've gone out into the countryside to find him and they're immediately hostile. Your disciples are eating before they wash their hands. Now, just so we understand, it's got nothing at all to do with health concerns. This charge refers to ritual washing. It was mandated by religious tradition. And again, they identify this as a tradition. 
But where does the tradition come from? Now, look, we know that before God delivered the law at Mount Sinai, you know, he had commanded the people to wash their garments in a a ritual act of purifying themselves. And then God came to speak with the people. And we also know from the book of Leviticus that it has a very detailed ritual washing of the priests before they enter into the service of the tabernacle. I mean, there are lots of ritual cleansings in the law. And so I hope you see that there are examples in the law of God in which ritual purification is mandated. However, there's no place in the Bible that mentions any ritual washing of the hands before eating, nor is there a place in the Bible that mandates that ordinary people are supposed to perform a regular ritual washing. That is, this is what we might call an extra-biblical tradition. Now, just to be clear, we have lots of extra-biblical traditions today. I'd argue that praying before a meal, that's a biblical tradition. Folding of the hands, well, that's an extra-biblical tradition. But that doesn't make it wrong, as with all traditions, however, they come from somewhere. So where does this tradition of ritual washing before the meal come from? While the religious leaders of Jerusalem identify this as a tradition of the elders. Now, in our day, uh, we might not know what that refers to, so a little explanation is required. And that explanation has to come in the form of a story. After the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, there was a shock in the Jewish community. Why had God allowed the enemy of the Jews to utterly defeat them and burn their temple to the ground? And the conclusion was the people had abandoned the law of God. And so after the exile, the returning Jews coming home to their own promised land, well, they were led by men like Ezra, who turned Israel back to the law of God. And that was overwhelmingly positive. But what started out as something positive, well, it slowly began to change. That's how traditions go. They, they develop over time. And at first, it was a matter of simply applying the law of God to a new situation. How should the returning exiles now keep the law, since their situation was different from when the law was given? What does the ancient law of God mean to us now in our day? Well, all that sounds positive. It's a great exercise. But that exercise became negative over time, and traditions can do that. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. In the past five years, I found myself in a ministry role I would never have imagined. At first, I have to admit, The move from pastor to sitting in a studio behind a microphone, well, it seems strange. But over time, having heard firsthand stories of God at work, I could have not been more convinced I'm right where God wants me to be. Thank you for your kindness and encouragement and supporting this ministry with your gifts and prayers. In gratitude, I wanna send you a gift, my newest series, Faith and What We Hope For, and a special edition of our 2020 Highlight Reel series. Five of my most requested messages from the past five years are in that one package. It's just a modest way of saying thanks for being with me. So call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and request faith in what we hope for and we'll automatically send you our 2020 Highlight Reel series. It's my gift and it's free. Please continue to stand with us in 2020. We're talking about how the traditions of the elders arose in Israel. In Israel's zeal to keep the law, that was a good impulse. Well, they decided they needed teachers to help them to apply the law to their situation. Well, it's really no different today. 
I mean, we expect preachers and teachers to explain the Bible to us and then help us to make application to our own lives. And that's good. That's, that's the way it should be. But eventually, men like the Pharisees arose who made their specialty application of the law. And what they taught was then handed down from one generation of students to the next generation of students. And notice what I'm saying. It's not that every generation needs Bible teachers. That's true. They need that. This is something much more. Every generation, according to the Pharisees, needed to remember what the previous group of rabbis had taught about the Bible. But how do you teach the next generation what the previous generations of rabbis had taught? The answer, you needed students to actually memorize the teaching of the rabbis who had gone before. Uh But with time, more notable and more respected rabbis also taught, and then you'd have to memorize their teachings as well. And as time progressed, the amount of material to be memorized, well, it just grew astronomically, and so did the amount of teachings and traditions, and it became increasingly difficult to memorize. More regulations, more opinions, more applications to the law, it just grew and grew. And then by about the year A.D. 200, that is about 170 years after Christ, the amount of traditions had become so large, I mean, who could memorize that? So a certain rabbi, his name was Rabbi Yehuda, he committed the whole tradition of the elders into a book. And that book, it's called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah contains interpretations of the law as well as the decisions of past distinguished rabbis and a long list of particular cases regarding the keeping of the law. And then after that came another document, and it was called the Gemara, and that comes out, and it's a commentary on the Mishnah. (laughs) It gets more complicated as we go. Now, of course, in Jesus' day, there, there was no Mishnah. That was still to come. But we can look at the Mishnah today and get a sense of what the tradition of the elders would have looked like in Jesus' day. And fascinatingly enough, the Mishnah, a very long section on how to wash your hands correctly. There are questions like, does washing of the hands extend to the wrists? How much water has to be used? From what sources can the water come from? And what are acceptable vessels out of which the water can be poured? I mean, there are over 4,000 words describing that matter alone, how to wash properly. I hope you see it. It really gets technical. And in the case of Jesus' disciples, they simply bypassed the whole debate. They just, well, they just didn't do it. And so from the vantage point of the Pharisees, they believe that Jesus, who's a very popular rabbi from Galilee, and he's teaching his disciples to disregard the whole tradition of the elders. He he was declaring war on the religion of the Jews, and he had to be stopped. Look again. Look where they accused him. While he was healing the hurting and the broken, I mean, they didn't care. That's because they had no interest in compassion. They just had an interest in keeping tradition. So let's keep reading because Jesus, while he isn't apologetic about ignoring the tradition of the elders, indeed, Jesus seems genuinely upset by the question of why he hasn't kept the traditions. Reading Matthew 15, 3 to 6, he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. I hope you see what Jesus is saying. You're studying what the rabbis said, aren't you? Well, you've become blind to the commands of God in Scripture. 
Indeed, you've become violators of Scripture, and you're violating the Scriptures while you're memorizing these huge blocks of teaching from the various rabbis. So here's an example. I mean, the key phrase is given to God. It's a technical designation for a practice, and in Mark's gospel, Mark actually gives it the technical word. It's the word korban. Let me explain. The law of God was very plain about this matter. Children are to honor their father and their mother. When children are young, the child owes his parents obedience. That is, obedience without complaining or rolling their eyes or sassing them back. Honor means honor. God has given children, parents, to teach and train them, and honor is due to them. Now, when a child leaves his father and mother's home, the Bible says that a man will leave his father and mother and then cling to his wife. And that is, the child now leaves the authority structure of the parent's home and obedience is no longer required, but honor remains. And this is especially important as as parents move into their later years. That might include financial help. So let me make some application to our present situation. You know, in some cases, parents may live in the same home with their children, and in other cases, they may live in their own home or even in a residential care unit. But if that's the case, children may not abandon their parents. They are required by God to visit them regularly, and they are required to cheer their hearts and to show them honor. God demands this of all of us. Ah, but let's get back to that concept called the concept of korban. Korban was a tradition of the elders. It was possible, said the elders, to say to your aging parents, Korban, all I owe to you, I consecrate to God. Now, the financial obligations are now given to God. They're a gift to God. They're a gift to the temple. And and according to the tradition, it was possible to delay that giving until later. It could even be a gift from your own estate. It was a fancy way, at least in my opinion, of lining the pockets of the religious establishment. Ah, the power of traditions. No one is asking what the Bible says anymore. They're only asking, what is it traditional? What does your rabbi say? What does your priest say? What does your pastor say? I mean, no one's studying the scripture. They're doing what they've always done. It's insidious, and Jesus was having none of it. Traditions, well, they allow men and women to violate scripture and feel no impulse of guilt whatsoever. Their traditions form a wall of protection around them. It's protection from the commands of God. And Jesus is not done. So here I'm reading Matthew 15, 7 to 9. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Ah, there you have it. Let's examine what Jesus said one step at a time to the Pharisees and scribes who made a long walk from Jerusalem to to express their concerns, Jesus responds, look, you fellows, your colleagues, you're all hypocrites. These guys were used to respect all the time and Jesus is just calling them out. A hypocrite is someone who says one thing and he does another. So how are these men hypocrites? Well, they say they're leading Israel to faithfulness to God. And instead, all they've done is obscured the word of God. And with that, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13. When Isaiah said these words, says Jesus, it describes you guys perfectly. You're inwardly corrupt. You're pretending to be what you're not. You've not taught men and women the authority of God at all. You've substituted your own authority with that which belongs to God. Let's make an application, shall we? There are two Latin phrases that I think will explain this matter. The first is the phrase sola scriptura, scriptures alone. 
That is, I don't care what your pastor thinks. I don't care what your favorite theologian thinks. Indeed, I don't care what the Pope thinks. Scripture, scriptures alone, has authority over us, away with human traditions that cloud the singular authority of the Bible. And here's the second Latin phrase. Sensus plenar means the plain sense of the text. None of this spiritualized application of the Bible, not some mystical approach to the Bible in which someone says, well, you know, the Lord just showed me what this Bible text means. Away with such nonsense. Show me the plain meaning of the text in the words on the page, on the grammar, in the context, and the historical background. What the text says plainly, show me that, no more, no less. And once we learn the difference between what the Bible says and what the traditions of men say, then we will know what God wants. And when we learn that, we will learn that our God rescues the lost and reconciles the sinners and heals the brokenhearted. We will find his heart of compassion for the broken. We will find that an adherence to the Bible opens the heart, not closes it. It gives us a compassionate response to those who need the compassion of God. That was Jesus, faithful to the Bible, friend of sinners. After that, let there be traditions. But let's never forget, it's never a sin to break the traditions of men. Let me say that again. It's never a sin to break the traditions of men. You can walk in the light of Scripture and be both faithful to God and have compassion for the lost. John, just as we were talking a minute ago, just off the air, you mentioned something I thought was was really interesting. You say sometimes it's it's our our traditions that that we choose to defend rather than the Bible itself. Yeah, I think that's the long history, the sad history of especially the Middle Ages church, where you know they simply uh, collected all of the series of uh, papal bulls and uh, things that had uh, been handed down to the church and people weren't reading the Bible anymore. They were simply reading the traditions of the church and defending them with all the energy that they had. And then, you know, today there are all sorts of people, you know, even in various denominations where you, you know, defend the tradition of the denomination. I mean, the reason I've said, you know, it's got to be a sola scriptura for us. And once we go there, we'll begin to see the world of people who are desperately in need of the gospel, and we'll give them that. May God give us the eyes to see that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Joshua from InDoubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, InDoubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. Our hope is to reach not only the young adult who stands firm in their faith, but also the one who has questions or doubts. In Doubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio, and you can check out all of our programs and resources at indoubt.ca. In Doubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. 
For more information, or if you would like to support InDoubt with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.